Like, I do think that that's just something that should happen. I love that. That's so savage. I love that. That's amazing. Welcome back to Gravel Trap F1. I'm Caroline. And I'm Christina. The Spanish Grand Prix was a little different this year. The track got rid of that pesky, silly little chicane. And many teams made some big changes to their cars. Today we'll be discussing some of those changes. And at the checkered flag, our foreign correspondent F1 Ibrahim joins us to discuss financial penalties in Formula One. It's all about the Benjamins. Mega rain. Welcome back to the Gravel Trap F1 podcast. We are so excited to be talking about the Spanish Grand Prix that happened this weekend. A lot of changes, some highs, some lows. But Christina, you are going to be talking to us about some side pods, correct? Side pods, yes. And particularly we're talking about it because Mercedes finally bit the bullet, finally did what we were hoping was inevitable, They have finally helped me complete a square on my F1 bingo card. They have side pods. So we're going to take a quick moment to talk about side pods. What do they actually contribute to the design of the car? And why we're all so thankful that Mercedes have finally potted up. We're talking about pods on the pod here at the Gravel Trap Pod. Well, before we even talk about Mercedes side pod, I think we just need to talk about side pods in general because... A lot of the times we kind of just see them and we see their funky shape and we make jokes about them being bathtubs or slides or zeros. Like we we joke about them a lot and we describe their shape, but what do they actually contribute to the car? One of the big things is that they hold the, uh, they hold the radiator and certain car components. So that way they can, it, it determines where they can put certain parts of the car. And so, for example, Mercedes having zero side pods has limited where their drivers can sit and where their cockpit can be be placed because they Mm. need that area behind the driver to have car pieces. They can't just move the driver wherever they want because they don't have that much freedom because they have no side pods. They have no storage space along those ends. And then the side pods are also holding the side impact structures. Mm-hmm. So those long tubes at the high point and lower down that, in case of an accident, protect the monocoque, protect the driver, and give mm-hmm. them that little bit of extra security. And then the third and kind of other big thing that they do is aerodynamics, which is kind of always the biggest conversation that we're having about Formula One cars and their designs is how is that airflow being directed? Mm-hmm. They're ground effects cars. So they want to funnel a whole bunch of air to below the car so that way it can create those areas of low pressure, suction cup down, and then the air flows out the outside. But of course, not all of the air ends up underneath the car. Some of it ends up flowing over top, which is where the side pods come into play. Mm -hmm. They're right behind the tires. And so they have to deal with the tire wake and where that turbulent air is being sent. They also have the the louvres the louvers now, (laughs) those little vents that help the radiators cool down. Yeah, not the museum in France. Exactly. And then they can also direct air to go down lower as we're seeing a lot of it and interact with the floor edge and all of those little winglets that they have in there and create little 
wakes themselves and little areas of um, downforce as well. So that's what a lot of the designs of the cars right now are doing is they're helping direct air towards the skirts. They're not technically Mm -hmm. skirts, I don't think, but towards those floor edges. So that way they can generate more downforce towards the front of the car. And with a lot of the cars as well now, we're seeing this kind of downward slide trend where the end of the side pod is like right, right, right below the tire, below the back tire a lot of the times. Yeah. And that's so that way you're directing the airflow again. Where is it going? Is it going high up towards the wing? Is it going down low towards the rear tire and the diffuser? That's what the side pods are doing. Yes, they're helping to generate downforce. They're helping to just guide the air. But that, that's basically their purpose is let's guide the air where we want it to go and have it contribute to downforce and make sure everything flows nicely. And one of the downfalls of Mercedes not having side pods is that the airflow really was just a little bit less controlled. So is it is it the new implementation of these new side pods that have created the performance that we saw this weekend? Because there was a significant step forward in their race pace this weekend. The side pods most likely helped a lot with that, mm-hmm. just because it was helping to generate more downforce than their original side pods were. But they did also make changes to their front suspension. And again, that changes, it's something farther forward. And so that's interacting with the airflow first. And then it's going towards the side pod. You kind of have a two for one deal there. Yeah. So with other elements, right, of the car, if you replace them a certain number of times in the season, you get a penalty. Is that the case as well with side pods? Like, is there an unlimited amount of side pods that they can change and bring in new side pods, new designs, new ideas? Or is there a limit? The limit is the cost cap at the end of the day. Oh, okay. Like that, that is what it is because again, you change, like we were talking earlier about them not being able to move the cockpit because they've designed around not having side pods, not having that side storage. Mm -hmm. It's a similar concept. You change one thing and you have to make sure it either A, works with everything else and how it's already set up or B, you have to change it. Yeah. So we can expect them to be able to shift some things around but not everything because it it costs money. And -hmm. there's a reason why they're, yes, adding side pods, but they're not not able to change their whole car concept because that would cost just way too much. And it's the reason why Christian Horner is already getting a little bit salty and kind of being like, they changed a lot about their car. How much did that cost them? Valid Mm -hmm. question. Valid question. And it is interesting how the pod talk and the pod designs have been such a big conversation. I feel like this year that I didn't, I don't really feel like I saw as much in the past. I mean, when Ferrari brought out their new one last year, that was like a lot of big talk. But uh, mm-hmm. I do feel like Red Bull, it's not controversial to say this, Red Bull has really figured it out and mm-hmm. clearly has something that works. And I'm I'm a little curious as to why it took Mercedes so long to start trying out some new side pod options. My general understanding of that development is that, again, we're in an era of ground effects cars. So mm-hmm. a lot of the priority was being placed on figuring out how to stop the porpoising, for one, that bouncing yeah. up and down yeah. along the straights that we were getting. And again, the majority of the downforce because their ground effects cars are coming from that airflow 
below. So that's that's kind of where a whole bunch of the priority was. It's not necessarily about that airflow over top, but Red Bull, again, because they got the ground effects part right, they were able to fine tune their side pods and all of that other stuff that gives you those tenths, that gives you that little bit of extra time and that cumulatively, cum, cumulatively gives you a better car. Well, cool. Yeah. Is there anything else that we need to know about side pods? Side pods are one of those things where I feel like it's great to talk about them on a podcast, but also not ideal because in my mind, I really just want to have like a picture and be able to show you all of the airflow, like -hmm. those dynamics. Mm -hmm. Again, we, we didn't talk about it in, it's not going to be a part of this podcast here, but it is a part of our episode, um, not episode, our Spain recap. We talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. the Apple tech that's coming out and how with virtual reality, AI, their fancy goggles, you can essentially see airflow going along the car. And that's that's what the that's what the side pods are about. If you can take anything out of this brief conversation on aerodynamics, yes. is that it's just about directing where the air goes to the best possible places. Yeah. And just having it's about controlling air, being an airbender. <laughs> the pods are for. <laughs> Well, in honor of this weekend's Spanish Grand Prix, for today's Grand Prix segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the Circuit de Catalunya, which was built in 1991 because the Summer Olympics were actually being held in Barcelona in 1992. So the track being built was actually part of that development. And ever since then, the Spanish Grand Prix has been held there. So you might have noticed when you were watching this weekend, that there is not a lap record at this track. When everybody was setting their times, everybody was noticing with the removal of the chicane in the final part of the track that the times were significantly lower. And I kept asking myself, why is there no lap record? I feel like these guys should be setting new lap records since we've shaved seconds off of the time. But it's because the track has had so many track changes in its history that it's like not even fair to consider a lap record because the track has not been the same. So you can't really decide what's the fastest and what's not the fastest. In 1991, when it was made, the first cars to hit the track were actually racing in the Spanish Touring Car Championship. And then two weeks later, so two weeks after its inaugural welcome to the track, Formula One actually raced at the Circuit de Barcelona de Catalunya, and Nigel Mansell and Ayrton Senna ended up in a drag race of sorts, going wheel to wheel down the straight in that first race, which is pretty exciting. Pretty great history there for Barcelona. So it is situated right outside of Barcelona. The city or the circuit was really popular testing destination for Formula One for many years. As we know, we've all seen testing in Barcelona until the in-season testing was limited uh, from 2009. And at first, it actually had a hard time bringing in larger crowds, but that's mostly because the growth and interest of the sport really started to grow in Spain due to the rise of Fernando Alonso in the early 2000s. And he was, you know, hometown kid in a lot of ways being from Spain. And so you started to see a lot more track attendance there in Spain in the early 2000s, which fun fact that I'm sure all of you already know, but I thought it was pretty cool that this weekend... In Spain, Fernando Alonso officially had been a part of 33.3% of all Formula One races ever, 
which is nuts to me. That's crazy to think of that one person in the history of the sport has competed Mm -hmm. in a third of all of the races ever. That's nuts. Talk about some history. I mean, again, remembering all statistics are lies and it's like, (laughs) it's, they tell whatever truth you want them to tell, okay? But it is worth remembering that we have more races on the new modern calendars by double in some cases than the early years. That's true. So, you know, it skewed statistics a little bit. But still pretty cool. But yes, he's... He's been in a lot of races. Yes. Very interesting. The history that Fernando Alonso has personally with the circuit and in the sport. But the venue had to briefly compete with Valencia as the other host of the Spanish race. But since 2013, the Circuit de Catalunya has regained its status as Spain's only world championship venue for Formula One. So modifications have been made to the original layout on actually... I don't know the exact number, but several occasions. So they it was called the Nissan Chicane. It was removed after 1994 due to safety problems because at the time the cars operated a bit differently um, and they felt that it was actually a safety issue to have the chicane there. So the next corner on the track, I'm going to butcher this name, but it's La Caixa? La Caixa was tightened in a largely unsuccessful attempt. They wanted to create a new overtaking opportunity, but it didn't work. So the uh, alteration was reversed in 2021. The corner was reshaped into something closer to the original, which was the sweeping configuration. Albeit they made it like they made it with a little bit more room for runoff because the cars were going faster. You have to remember. I mean, every every year they're pretty much going faster. And they're fatter. Yes. So they had to make more space for the sake of overtaking and for safety reasons. So uh, in 2007, another alteration was made to improve the safety. The chicane was inserted between the two high-speed corners at the end of the lap, as we see. And actually, the year after that, in 2008, they resurfaced the track after a MotoGP race where they complained due to dangerous conditions, which honestly, that's a long time to go without resurfacing the track. I mean, I feel like... Mm-hmm. It's a long time. Okay. But in more yeah. recent history. I feel history, like in North America, though, we yeah. have our, our roads. I feel like our roads are especially like our idea of what's reasonable for resurfacing. That's true. Very That's so different. True. That's so true, honestly. Because honestly, in a lot of these European cities, I mean, they're still, they're still driving down the roads on the roads that were from like, I don't want to misquote, but like the 1700s, you know, like it's like the same stuff. Um, Ye olden days. Ye olden days. But anyway, so then in 2021, which was not that long ago, they changed turn 10 to accommodate more space and therefore more runoff for the sake of the safety as well, since the cars were once again going faster. Uh, Most recently, as we've all seen this year, they took out the final chicane, reducing everyone's lap times by a significant margin. But remember no lap times because or no lap record because of all of these changes it was chicane no chicane chicane no chicane chicane no chicane which was always to accommodate the cars really at the end of the day and what it was that they were capable of doing what was safest for them fun fact only two drivers on the current grid had ever driven in the circuit de barcelona de catalunya without the chicane in like of all time 
And it's no surprise that it was Lewis and Fernando. But Lewis had only done it in testing. Fernando was the only one that had ever done it in a race. But they're the only ones who had ever driven the circuit without the chicane. So there was a lot of interviewing happening with them where they were like, what do you think? Is it going to be okay? And I think it was Lewis that actually said, I think it's going to be better because it's kind of pointless to have the chicane with the way the cars operate now. It's just, it's just pointless. And they made it before because the cars didn't have the grip to be able to handle the high speed. But he's like, now, I mean, bring it on. You know, they got all the grip. So yeah, that is a brief history of all of the many changes, the many makeovers. Honestly, watching them go between the now 13 and 14 corners, they went and whizzed down that so quickly that it's kind of just like, wait, there was Honestly. time squeezing a chicane there. Mm-hmm. Like it just it, it was it felt like such a blink and you miss it type of a moment because they were taking it so quickly. And mm-hmm. you can look on the cameras and you can see like, oh yeah, there's the chicane. There it goes. <laughs> I had a good time watching them come around that final corner, especially in qualifying, because it's fun to watch them manage coming around at such a high speed. I don't know. It's fun. But I laughed a little bit to myself when I was doing some of the research that they changed turn 10 to make it wider to accommodate for more space and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was one of the turns that Max was getting in trouble for not staying within track limits this weekend. I was like, not that they made it bigger and he's still not staying within track limits. LOL. That was in 21 and 2021. (laughs) You know how they're, how earlier we were talking about drivers just like going on a cruise in their formula one car. Yeah. I've seen like, Oh, look at the trees. Look at the birds. Oh, my teammate. How are they doing? I feel like Max and his track limits was kind of just a moment of him being like, let's see if anyone's really watching. Just a casual Sunday drive. (laughs) Whoop. Like, I'm just waiting for GP to kind of just be like, hey, Max, want to do some trivia here? Oh my gosh. I would love that. They have the time. Yeah. Max should have his like post (laughs) finish line fun fact. Because there's nothing happening. He should have, he has 26 seconds to share a fun fact with the world before anybody else crosses the line. (laughs) Does his post-race interview into the car? Oh my gosh, that'd be so funny. That'd be so funny. That's something that IndyCar does. I think they used to do that. I don't know if they don't do it anymore. But with the driver of the day, when you vote driver of the day, they, they did would used do, to, yeah. I don't. Where did that go? Because I loved that because it was a fun little surprise. They're like, "Oh, I'm the driver of the day. Who knew?" And then yeah. they like get asked about it in the car. I loved that. Don't know where it went. Bring it back. For today's checkered flag segment, we are so excited to bring back in our foreign correspondent, F1 Ibrahim, all the way over from across the pond. Welcome, Ibrahim. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for having me back. Today we're talking about. Fines, is that correct? Fines, yes. And and financial penalties, obviously, it's a, it's a bit of a nasty topic. Has to be discussed, obviously, as you know. The FIA were very quick on the heels of Mercedes after the Spanish Grand Prix, fining them 10,000 euros. Mm. Now, we don't know exactly what they did. Um, I've got the FIA document right in front of me. It's, it only says that mm-hmm. the Mercedes-AMG Petronas Formula 1 team is fined 10,000 euros. The stewards received the report from the media delegate, which was subsequently confirmed by video evidence that the physio-slash-driver's assistants of Lewis Hamilton's and George Russell's car entered Park Ferme in violation of the post-race interview and podium ceremony procedure that was published prior to the race, quote-unquote, for orderly conduct of the event. 
pounds. So they got fined 10,000 euros. And obviously, this isn't the first time that we've had uh, financial penalties uh, being given to teams. I'm actually going to open it up to you. Can you name a financial penalty? A notorious, we've had quite a few big ones in, in the history uh, of F1. Can you each give me one yeah, well, financial big one? We have Max's notorious rear wing touch fine, which was my personal favorite. But um, quick question on the physio thing, because yes. didn't they warn, wasn't there a warning? Was it this season that there was a warning about the physios and they were like, we're going to start cracking down on this? They were talking about during Australia last year, the underwear and the jewelry thing. And then there was an issue that was brought up. I think that it was this season, though, where they said hey, the physios aren't supposed to be interacting with the drivers or having any con physical contact with the drivers in Park Verme after the race. Something to do with in impacting them bef before they're weighed and or giving them or taking things from them that would, that would change that number. I think that all of the physios of all of the teams have been doing this for a long time. And the FIA just hasn't really been enforcing that rule. Because let's be real, there's a lot of rules. Circling back real quick, you the Max Verstappen thing was 50,000 euros for touching the wing of Lewis Hamilton. Yes. Which subsequently turned into a 30-place grid penalty for Hamilton because the wing was out of spec, was, right? That was the one where he ended up in yeah. the back of the grid. So the, the, the rear wing it turned out to be like 0.2 millimeters to big in terms of the drs like 0.2 millimeters mm -hmm. um but obviously max was was fined for i guess tampering with it but yeah christina do you, do you have a, a favorite penalty <laughs> in in history i have to say i don't pay too much attention to the penalties but i feel like the most recent big 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 boy we've had has been just the cost cap yeah so we had uh red bull being hit with a seven million dollar fine for exceeding the cost cap back in so it was the penalty was given in 2022 because they exceeded it in 2021. We've had a quite a few interesting ones actually. So we've had um, obviously the 10,000 uh, euros this week. We've had uh, the notorious max 50,000 euro one. One of the biggest ones we've had is is Spygate. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but um, that was when yes. McLaren. <gasps> yeah. Tell us about it. So McLaren were effectively accused of. Um, stealing confidential information from Ferrari. And that ended up being a very, very big scandal. They were very, very heavily penalized. You know, they were removed from the constructors. If, you know, McLaren won a race, they, they weren't allowed to send up uh, somebody from the constructor to pick up the constructor's uh, trophy or anything. They were hit pretty hard. And I, and I remember reading an article saying that, you know, initially they got fined what? 100 million 100 million serious serious money and what was even funnier is that i read from somewhere is that actually it was um the fia president at that time which was max mosley he had a personal sort of hatred for um mclaren team principal ron dennis so he actually said i, I could have actually charged him a lot less i just made him pay a lot more simply because i don't <laughs> like ron dennis and he, and he said that blatantly uh for everyone to see <laughs> so which uh, I'm not going to get into the ethics of that. I love but, that. Uh, yeah. And wasn't Ouch. that the largest fine in sports history? It's, it's definitely the largest oh in God. Formula One. So petty. It could definitely yeah. be in the conversation for largest of all time. I mean, $100 million. Uh, even for a team like McLaren and it's, it's prime, that's, that's a lot of money. 
the question is, where does that money go? Where, where does that money end up? So, you know, Max mm-hmm. said, um, was actually asked in Brazil back in 21. He's, he said, uh, you know, I hope they buy a nice bottle of wine, spend it on a nice dinner. I don't know what dinner costs, 50,000 euros. I know. Tell me about it. He was just a bit upset that he couldn't spend it on his FIFA points on his laptop. But where does this money actually go? Well, the FIA fundamentally is a non-profit organization. I would assume they use the money to pay for the electricity in the headquarters in Paris. But they don't do that. They actually use that money to pay for other various things, such as training the marshals for the crash barriers and just overall implementing any other form of safety, because ultimately safety is number one priority for the FIA. Um, We love safe racing. It's unfortunate that we can't get it quite to 100%, but uh, they do their best. So yeah, that's where they, they spend the money that they collect from penalties. And uh, I was reading an article saying that of the 100 million that was charged to McLaren, they used about half of that was sent directly to make improvements on on track safety, such as high speed barriers, debris fences, and crash impact testing, amongst many, many more, and training marshals, as well as support medical and crash extraction training throughout F1 down to the grassroots level. Mm. So, the question that I have for you is I've, I've already discussed where it has gone, but where else could you see, where else would you like to see that money go from fines to help further develop uh, the sport? I know. I'd love if some of that money went towards permanent bathrooms at the tracks because at all of the Grand Prix I've gone to, some of them have permanent bathroom options, but most of them have Porta Johns. And I'm like, look, we can make this fan experience so much better with mm-hmm. permanent bathrooms, especially for some of these that are permanent tracks. That's what I want. <laughs> That's p- fully personal and selfish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I understand it. I, I remember I'm mean, just having flashbacks to Lewis Hamilton, Spa. 2021 i want to say and he was obviously complaining like he had seen like the worst turd he has ever seen in his life when it, when it just pre-race oh, yeah. Do you remember? yeah um so yeah that, that, that makes I, I remember this quote yeah was like he dropped an absolute like, oh is he not not lewis oh well, bad as far as we know not lewis but um someone had dropped an absolute <laughs> bomb uh in in the bathroom mm-hmm. so uh yeah. you're sure he wasn't talking about the w13 Ha ha. I don't know if legally the money could go towards that, but like when I've been asked before, what's the one thing you would change? That is always the one thing I would change because I'm like, this is the pinnacle of motorsport. We should have the pinnacle of bathrooms, the pinnacle of toilet in the pinnacle of motorsport. I wish at least a percentage of the fines were distributed to charities. So of every Ooh, yeah. fine that's that's done, you know, you have 85% of it that goes towards facilities and goes towards training and goes towards the things. But every single time there's a fine, I don't care if it's 10 euros or 100 million euros, a percentage of it goes towards a charity that is a new – that I, and I'd love it for it to be a local one too. Like if, for example, there was one you were fined in Barcelona – then 10 or 15% of the fine that you were fined in Barcelona goes towards a local charity. And they could have totally done that for Imola. Like they could have 
decided mm-hmm. to do, okay, for the rest of the year, the donations are going to go towards relief funds in Imola. I think that would be making the sport about more mm-hmm. than just the sport. Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of makes me wonder as well how much money is going towards just more money should be going towards funding up and coming drivers. Like, I do think that that's just something that should happen because looking at the numbers of money that they have to raise to go karting, it's like, and like their intro to single seater careers, it's like, I'm sorry, but like there are kids who struggle to raise enough money to go to like their basic university that's just up the street. And these kids have to use their personality and like, I don't know what else to try and convince big companies to like give them buckets and buckets of money, which Again, it's elitism. It is like, if you can't afford it, you can't afford it, which leaves out a lot of potential talent in my mind. So how much money is going towards just making it so less funding is needed? And what's even better about this idea, Christina, these guys would then be financially supporting their replacements. So it's a further incentive (laughs) to not break the rules because then you're literally paying for your replacements <laughs> to be developed. I love that. That's so savage. I love that. That's amazing. It's like, just twist the knife a little deeper. Not only are you paying, you are paying and supporting your replacement. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. great. But yeah, no, definitely. I think obviously, in my opinion, one of the biggest problems with, uh, I guess, motorsport as a whole is like Christina said, is, is grassroots participation. It's, the amount of money that you need just to for, for tires alone to get your own car and to be able to race regularly is, is in my opinion, a little bit too high, way too high. And then they should really focus on, on um, grassroots participation. We are missing out on a lot of potentially generational talent, but they just don't have the money for it. So Ibrahim, I'm curious, are there any, and I'm putting you on the spot, are there any fines that you've come across that you feel like were just completely ridiculous? Like, why did they yes. fine them for that? Yes, Yay! I do. And I, yes, I do. And I, and I literally just, I was just scrolling through and I, I remembered. I was like, how did I forget this? So you guys remember back in 2000 and I believe two, it was Austrian Grand Prix. Um, Ferrari team orders uh, instructed Rubens Barrichello to move out of the way for Michael Schumacher. He said, let Michael pass for the championship. And after that, the FIA took that in a very salty manner uh, and hence became a rule. No team orders. Mm -hmm. Guess who was the next culprit of making team orders after that? Ferrari. Was it Christian? Oh, no way. Yeah. So Ferrari in 2010 Obviously, you know, you weren't allowed to give direct team order saying, get out of the way. So Ferrari tried to come up with a creative way around it to Sneaky sneak. S- yeah, sneak it in. So we all mm. I believe we all remember the famous radio message, you know, Fernando is faster than you. Yes. That was considered a team order. And I believe in the end, mm. um Felipe Massa didn't get out of the way. So the, the team order was it was ignored. But uh yeah, Ferrari got fined uh, about a hundred thousand euros for just that team order. When he was, didn't even was... do it? Wait, I think he did. I think he did move for him. Did he did he end up getting out of the way? I think he did because that was why it became an issue because Christian Horner was the one that was like, this was a team order because okay. he was the one that reported them to the FIA that was like, that mm. was a team order. They're not allowed to do that. Um, and then they they very shortly after 
disbanded the rule against team orders. They started allowing team orders. Correct. Yeah. So after that, yeah, they they got rid of the team orders. But yeah, first of all, I just find it rather amusing that it was Ferrari's actions that created the rule. It was Ferrari then who suffered at the hands of the rule. (laughs) And then it was Ferrari that got effectively got rid of the the rule. (laughs) So... And but, uh, man, yeah, think, that's a big fine. That's a big, that's not a small number. Thousand. That's a big number. For, for just a couple of words. So, Yeah. Ibrahim, thank you so much for joining us for the checkered flag. It was so lovely to have you. Go get some sleep. Go get some good rest and enjoy your summer break. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to chat to you guys as always. And I will see you and speak to you very, very soon. See ya. Bye. What a time, what a time, what a time. (laughs) It won't feel this long to everybody listening, but we have been chatting for close to two hours for content for this podcast episode. But also we had a lovely conversation just specifically about Le Grand Prix and the different things that happened. So if you want to hear that specific conversation, I'm assuming it's going to be in the link below this episode because that seems like something Buck would do. That is correct, Christina. (laughs) They'll be able to find... All the fun extras and outtakes at our YouTube channel at Gravel Trap F1. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. We've done our shameless self plug. We love ya. Meow. Meow. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in, race fans. It means a lot. If you enjoy our podcast, a great way to support us is by leaving a rating or review. And if you include your Formula One hot take or unpopular opinion in your review, we'll shout them out on the show.